Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Pete Mitchell here. On our last podcast, Peyton and I spoke about the sermon that he recently gave at Refuge Long Beach on the Great Commission. We decided to put that up as a special podcast uh, for you to be able to listen to and uh, enjoy. We are not replacing any of our normal weekly podcasts with this one. We just thought it'd be a little bonus, a little extra, something that you might enjoy. So with that, let's get on with Peyton's sermon on the Great Commission. Lord, we thank you that you reign. Because you reign, we can go. We can tell people about you. You said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because of that, go into all the world and make disciples in my name. Telling them the good news of the kingdom. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I promise I will be with you to the very end of time. Jesus, you're here with us this morning. There is a battle raging in this room right now, Lord. There is a huge battle raging. Not only for the hearts of those who don't know you, but also for the hearts of those who do. Father, there is always a battle, and yet you have said, I reign. I reign. Lord, half of our problem is we want to reign. We want to rule. That was our first parent's problem, and it's still our problem this morning. If you reign and you rule, then all we need to do is to bow before you and to submit to you and to worship you, to let go, Lord, of our grasp, to unclench our fist, which so desperately seeks after control of things that we can't control. 
and simply trust and surrender at your feet. Lord, we look up to you this morning and we trust. We just release, we let go, we trust. We bow down in our hearts, recognizing you as the king, you as the ruler. And we praise you for being our God, who has all authority, and our God who will never leave us or forsake us, but says, I will be with you. Lord, be with us now. Win our hearts. Win the battle in me and in everybody here. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 16. Where? Believe it or not. <laughs> no, that wasn't a question. Thanks, thanks for playing, though. Where today we will be finishing the book of Mark. Woo! It's been a long time. We started the, uh, the core team build. We're kind of getting, you know, a lot of you guys ready to, to do what we were going to be doing. We said uh, we're going to go through Acts chapter 1 and 2, where this all is going. Mark chapter 16 ends, but it's not the end. It's the beginning. And so we started off our core team going into Acts 1 and 2. Then we went into Titus because Titus was a book about church planning. And then we thought, right, if we're going to tell Long Beach anything, we want to tell them that Jesus has come and that he's a revolutionary. If you ever read Mark, that's what Mark is about. Mark is about Jesus as a revolutionary. Someone who comes, upends the religious system, upends your priorities, turns everything inside out, backwards to frontwards, puts everything upside down or right side up, depending on how you look at it. But Jesus comes as a revolutionary to start a revolution. Um, Every, every one of us is, is tempted to think of Christianity as the religion of conformity. But Christianity has always been a religion of nonconformity. It has always been the rebel yell of world religions. It is the one which says, you do not work to God, God worked his way to you. Jesus came as the one to spark a revolution in every single person's heart. He doesn't come like Islam to take it by force, repent or die. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? The kingdom of God is within you. He doesn't ask for you to look inside of yourself deeper and deeper and deeper until you find inner peace and nirvana. He says, that's the problem with the world. The world looks inward too much. The world is too self-absorbed. We call it selfishness. Jesus said, there are two places you need to look. Number one, at Him, your Creator, and love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, love the person next to you like you love yourself. Now that's revolutionary. Jesus is the rebel rouser. He is not only the greatest rebel that ever lived, but he will make you a rebel if you really follow him. 
He will make you a nonconformist. We have gone through this book. We have watched Jesus eventually get himself killed by doing what? By starting a movement that petered out? No. By being so countercultural, not only to political institutions, to religious institutions, to social institutions, to racial institutions. You know that we're going to talk about this. When Jesus says, go out to all the world, he turned race issues inside out, didn't he? I mean, Jesus stood flat. Sexist issues? The disciples come in and they say, what's Jesus doing talking to a woman? For Jewish men did not speak to women publicly. Jesus turned that on its head, didn't he? We have come to the end of this book, which has been amazing, and already some of you have been revolutionized. Your lives have changed. Some of you were not following Jesus when we started this book a year and a half ago, and you're following him today. We're going to read Acts chapter 16, or excuse me, Mark chapter 16. (laughs) Verse 12, it says, After these things, this is after the resurrection, He appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. This is just one of those things that kind of tells you we're dealing with an eyewitness account. We're dealing with something that really happened. See, if I made up a religion, I wouldn't tell you that, oh, you know, and then by the way, you know, um, this incredible thing happened. We, you know, uh, none of us believed. We're all afraid. Um, We didn't believe it. We told the women, stop being hysterical. You're just upset that he's dead. Um, It does not portray themselves in a good light, does it? Basically, we've got a record here that says, oh, we didn't believe, by the way, that any of this happened. You're reading this, you don't believe, that's okay. We didn't believe either, right? We were normal human beings. We were typical people. Goes on to say, afterward, verse 14, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. Reclining at the table? Another eyewitness account. Didn't have to put that detail in, but when you tend to see little details like that, often it's because it's an eyewitness account. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So here's the 11, because Judas is dead, right? So it calls them the 11 here. Here they are. They don't believe the testimony of others who say he is risen from the dead. So right away, the gospel writers put you in the seat that they once sat in. Because you're having to depend on someone else's testimony, right? To believe. And they didn't believe. They were dependent on someone else's testimony. They went, "Mm, no, don't believe it. And then Thomas comes in at some point in another gospel and says, I won't believe unless I see. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, check this out. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. 
So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, some of you may not realize this, but verse 9 to the end of the chapter, there's a question whether or not it belongs in the Bible at all. Did you know that? If you look down at your Bible, it'll say, some older manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 16. What's that all about? Well, it may be that Mark ended with verse 8. Now, someone read verse 8 out loud. Somebody read it. Go ahead. Somebody read it. Not a great way to end a gospel, right? <laughs> For they were afraid. So, scholars are saying, you know, we don't think Mark meant to end it like that. And there's this big debate raging. Very few scholars actually believe, and I did my research, did my homework, that that's actually how it's supposed to read. But there are two of our oldest manuscripts on Mark's gospel, verses 9 on isn't there. And so it's led scholars to say, well, we think there was a different ending, but we don't know what it was. And so there's a bunch of theories. One of the theories is, Although the two oldest manuscripts don't have it, that probably indicates that a manuscript predating those two had the bottom piece missing. Now you know how it is. Someone's copying it over, right? And they're like, done. And they forget like, to move the scroll just a little bit more. Uh, you know, and like, you know, pretty soon that's what happened. Or maybe a piece got torn off. You see, the fact is, we're dealing with a document. Uh, by the way, Richard Dawkins gets on a talk show, right? Or he debates people. He wrote a, a, a famous book called The God Delusion. Anyone heard of it? He often goes into interviews and he says things like this. I mean, who wants to believe anything that was written 30, 40 years after the, you know, after the events actually took place? And everyone goes, ha, 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 ha. And he gets a good chuckle, right? Not realizing that on the bestsellers right now in Barnes & Noble, almost every memoir, almost every biography is written 30 to 40 years after. What happened in the New Testament is all of these were written somewhere around 60, right? 60 AD to 90 AD. All of the New Testament, all scholars agree that it was written somewhere around there. And so what happened was these guys, as they were getting older, didn't rely on the oral tradition anymore, and they had it written down. Well, somewhere there was a document floating around. Now, did a piece get ripped off? Probably, right? So here's some theories. One theory is maybe Mark's gospel did end with verse 8, and it was like the shock and awe of the resurrection. Maybe, but not many people believe that. The second theory is maybe verse 9 through 16, actually somebody found the other document and said, oh, you know what, that can't be right, and either added stuff in from the other gospels, or maybe someone found an older document, and this is actually the original ending of Mark. Either way, we don't know. So the question is, well, if we're not sure, why preach it? Right? Because it's there. No, just joking. That's not a very good reason, is it? Because it's still true. We, we don't know. 
It could be originally. Could be one of the eyewitnesses wrote it. Could be an overzealous monk, maybe later, you know? Or, oh, this can't be right. Oh, I'll make a good one. But what we do know is every single clause in here, with the exception, you know the one about drinking poison? We don't know where that came from. The snake handler one, right? You can pick up snakes. That was not so that strange, weird churches in Texas could pick up rattlesnakes and jiggle around with them. Okay? That's a reference to something that actually happened in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul gets bit by a snake when he's on the Isle of Malta in the Mediterranean, and he doesn't die, and all of the native uh, not natives like Ooga Booga, but natives like people who lived on the island who were used to seeing people get bit and die by those snakes, all of those people believed because they realized God is with this guy. And so it was a sign. And so Mark talks about it. Let me just walk you through real quick. Those of you that are into this stuff, you like it. The rest of you would be like... Krr. So here we go. Verse 11. The lack of belief is found in Luke 24, 11. This is just for those of you that take notes. Verse 12, the two disciples on the road is directly from Luke 24, 13 through 35. The reproach in verse 14 for unbelief is John 20, verses 19 through 26. Verse 15, the Great Commission, the parallel is Matthew 28, 19, very famous verse. Verse 16, salvation and judgment. That passage is almost word for word from John 3:18 and John 3:36. Speaking in tongues, well, that happened all over the book of Acts, but notably Acts 2, 4 and Acts 10, 46. Serpents, Acts 28, 3, 5, the story I just told you. Laying hands on the sick all over the place, but Acts 9, 17 and 28, 8 are famous. And the ascension in verse 19, Luke 24, 51, Acts 1, 2 through 9. And in verse 20, you get a general summary of the book of Acts. In other words, to tell you this wasn't the end, this is only the beginning. So what's the poison story all about? I'm guessing it had something to do with martyrdom. I'm guessing probably, most likely, because there's a lot of stories about things where in the first century in particular, they tried to kill people who wouldn't die, like John the Apostle, right? I mean, that's actually you know, written about in extra biblical sources, where this happened, they tried to kill him, finally they could only exile him, because no matter what they tried to do to kill him, it didn't work. And one of the famous ways to kill people back then was to make them drink poison. Remember Socrates killed himself by drinking poison? So, there you have it. So why preach it? Because it's true. Something can still be true, even if it's not divinely inspired. And I've just given you all the other scriptures. And what I want to do this morning is focus on Jesus's command to go. If this message had a title this morning, it would be go. That's simple, right? So it's what we call the great commission, our marching orders. In the UK, someone once asked, an army chaplain once asked the Duke of Wellington, do you think it's any use for us taking the gospel to the hill tribes of India? Will they ever receive it? The Duke replied, Well, what are your marching orders? In other words, speaking from soldier to soldier, he was saying, It doesn't really matter, does it? Whether you think we can do it. A soldier then go into war and say, Can we really win this? You know, are we going to, you know, I don't know. I don't know. General, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, all the guys turning back. Captain, uh, we got a problem here. This ain't going to work. No, you go, don't you? 
You obey the orders of your captain, the commanding officer. That's why Jesus is saying, guys, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. We're going to win this. The gates of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. Go. Those are the marching orders. Because there's doubt about the inspiration of this passage, I want you just to flip over to Matthew 28. Because now, you know, as Andrea said, I was telling her about this morning, she goes, don't even tell them. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. In Mark chapter 16, the Great Commission says, go. You can find that in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Because there's doubt about the inspiration of Mark's ending, and confusion in the church about what we're supposed to be doing, I want you just to see this. First, I'd like to uh, point out the fact that Jesus says, in, uh, back in Mark, he says, go and preach the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? Jesus says it later in Matthew. He says, preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the glad news. What does it mean, the glad news? It means news that you're glad to hear. Let me tell you what the gospel is in a nutshell. God loves you so much. He wants a relationship with you more than you want with him. That's all true for all of us. Anyone who's become a Christian, yeah, that's true. God wanted me. God died for you. He sent his son Christ. He died for you. He took all the penalty of everything you've ever done wrong. If you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough to, to follow Jesus. That's nonsense. You're not good enough. That's true. But it has nothing to do with following Jesus. We follow Jesus because he was good enough for you. And he took your place. And he said, I don't want you to follow yourself. I loved you so much. I came and I did what you couldn't do. I lived the life you should have lived but couldn't. And now, he said when he laid his life down, he said, I'll lay my life down for the sheep. Lay my life down for you. But then I'll raise it up again on the third day. Here's the deal. When he died on the cross, he took all of the punishment, all of the anger against sin that was intended for you and me, took it upon himself, died with it. Because God doesn't want to punish you. He wants you to know his love. So he came and he stood in the gap for you. Took it. And then he rose from the dead to prove it. It's one thing to say, I'm going to take all your sin upon me. Jesus rose from the dead to show you. Justice has been satisfied. I was innocent. The Bible connects the resurrection with the innocence of Jesus. And God basically said, all accounts are cleared now. Raised him from the dead. Now you believe upon him. And you're accepted by God. Now that's good news, right? I'm accepted by God based on what someone else has done. I like them kind of odds. I like getting in on someone else's ticket. You know what I'm saying? Because my ticket expired. You ever ever had a, a ticket that expired for something? Maybe an annual pass somewhere? You know? To Costco? And you're like, dang, I can't get into Costco. You know, you're just hoping they see your picture and go, eh, give you the nod, the Costco nod. And you walk in, right? You're hoping when you get up to the counter, you know, you're, you're going to be good. But when you get in on someone else's card, right, it doesn't matter. You're like, they're good. I'm not good. They're good. They got this. 
That's the good news of the gospel. And I need to say that this morning because what I'm about to say this morning, I'm going to challenge us to go. And I don't want anyone here this morning to misunderstand and think that this morning, if I'm going to challenge you, because you might start feeling a little bit uncomfortable, like, because you're not going. And you might start getting confused and thinking, well, maybe God doesn't love me and doesn't accept me because I'm not going. Heck no. I'm going to challenge you this morning to go. I'm going to talk about how the church doesn't go very good, right? Kind of like an old beat-up Nova sometimes. Nova in Spanish, no go. Didn't sell very well in Mexico. They had to change the name. It's kind of like the church, right? We're called to go, and what's the thing we do? We stay in one spot for a long time. But I want you to understand this morning, nothing I'm about to say has to do with your acceptance by Jesus. But I'll tell you what it does have to do with this morning, your satisfaction with Jesus. Because I am of the opinion that the Holy Spirit in us will not be satisfied until we go. And we will feel that frustration. We'll start feeling that dissatisfaction. And when I look around this morning, not, not here, but I mean just in general, you know, out in the world, Christianity, I just don't think Christians are very satisfied. Because we're not doing what we've been left here to do. If I were to ask you, what do you think we've been left here to do? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Go! You ready? So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. And what's awesome about that is he tells us, hey, I've got this. This is my mission. And I got all authority. There's nothing too hard for me. Guys, Christianity is a story of the impossible. There is no way Christians, this little quote-unquote sector cult, should have been able to dominate the Roman Empire, but it spread like a wildfire. Jesus said it would. There's no way. They threatened to kill him, to put him in prison, to rip him to shreds, to throw him to wild animals, to crucify him on the hills, to burn him alive, and that was the story throughout history. It's only in the recent centuries that Christianity really became powerful. Yeah, you can go back to Constantine. You can go back to that, but that weren't Christianity. It's only in the last few centuries that Christianity, as it should be rightly understood, kind of became big religion. But Christianity is a story of going and spreading. The question this morning is, are you going? Right? Go. That's, that's the first question. If I were to look at the Great Commission, I were to say, where, what, when, who, when you were a kid, and they told you how to write a good term paper, and you had to, you know, just ask those questions, and you'll get a C-. minus. Uh, well, if I were to say where, the where is go. Now, what's cool about that is, if you're in China, guess what go means? Somewhere else. Right? Not outside of the country, but like out of your household, maybe out of your neighbor, like you just start moving outward. And that's the pattern that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. He says, they, they go like this. They go, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore your kingdom earth? In other words, can we just go home? Are we done here? You've risen from the dead. Hey, we'll have a little party this awesome. We gave you a piece of broiled fish. We know it's true now. We believe. Um, 
We're going to heaven now? And Jesus says, look, uh uh-uh. That's kingdom restoration. Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to earth? No. Kingdom restoration is none of your business. That's between the Father and me. But he says, let me tell you what is your business. Kingdom expansion. You're to go. You'll be my witnesses. Power will come from on high. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you follow the book of Acts, that's how it goes, right? Starts off in Jerusalem. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria, right? Persecution starts spreading. Then it goes to where? The ends of the earth. It hits the pagan Gentile world, and then it spreads. And we're still in that section right now. That's what's happening. But it's no good for us to to talk about going for a bunch of time and define it. Francis Chan talks about uh, what it means when he tells his daughter to clean his room. He basically says, you know, imagine if I tell my daughter, go clean your room. And an hour later, she comes back and I say, did you clean your room? And she says, well, I thought about cleaning my room. I, I prayed about it. You know, I prayed about cleaning my room. And, you know, I went, I went back in the room and, and I just ruminated over it a bit. And then I called my friends and I invited them over. And we came together and we had a study about what it means to clean my room and what it would actually look like. If we were to clean the room, and what models and diagrams and what methods we might use if we were to clean our room, and then we decided to hold some potlucks, you know, just to, you know, kind of make it a little bit more warm and intimate. And... But you can see that that's what we do when it comes to going, right? Are we going? The question I want to ask this morning is, what are you doing in your little sphere to go? And that could be as easy as just walking next door and talking to your next door neighbor could be talking to someone. It's what are you doing to make disciples? Christ's church today is suffering for a lack of knowing what to do with themselves. Have you ever had a job where you're, you're hired onto the job and you sit there? I remember getting a job in Wales and I finished my work like almost right away, right? They said, this is your job description. And in a five-day work week, it only took me like two days to do it. You ever had a job like that? And so I, I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand the job because I got a lot of time on my hands and I'm sitting around, you know, kind of like, oh, I got iTunes, I'll organize my iTunes because I'm thinking I, I've done everything. And then I'm making things out of paper clips and I'm walking around the office, how are you doing? You know, going and getting snacks, taking a bunch of bathroom breaks, going over to other cubicles, what do you do? That's where I think a lot of Christians are today. They're bored, they're aimless, they're confused. They feel like, well, there's not a lot for me to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I come to church and that's cool. And, you know, I hear sermons and that's cool. And, you know, I go to maybe Cog and I, I pray sometimes, that's cool. Um, but I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with myself? I went recently to a Christian conference and um, it's pretty famous, pretty big. Cost 300 bucks to be there for two days. And... Uh, at the end of this, um, you know, I'm walking around and I'm thinking like there's teaching and there was worship. There was an awful lot of entertainment. And there was on the grounds like Ferris wheels for adults. I don't know if you're weird, but I, I, there people were riding on Ferris. Some of you guys are like, oh, I know a conference. That is. There was Ferris wheels. There were like booths set up with like a bunch of people doing um, paint, paint pellet art. There were guys doing giant like cat's, cat's eye you know, needlework things that were really big, and you're supposed to go, 
whoa. And I walked around, and I'm just going, like, none of it had any connection whatsoever to Christianity. It was just Christians having fun. It was just playing. I remember walking through there, scratching my head, going, if we're at a point where we have to keep Christians entertained, then they're bored. If Christians are bored, it's because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And we've substituted fun for adventure. Because let me tell you something. When Jesus is standing there in Matthew chapter 28, and he's saying, go, he is telling the disciples, you guys are in for the ride of your lives. You guys are about to embark on the most exciting adventure you've ever been on. And that's not just preacher boys standing up here trying to motivate a crowd and, you know, um, talk to, you know, get everyone entertained. Listen, I've been a missionary for 12 years. My biggest fear when I came back to California was I would somehow stop being a missionary, that I would get so sucked up into the Southern California, Orange County, Disneyland, Christianity mentality that I would stop being who God made me in 12 years. It's one of the reasons why maybe this church is a little bit different, why we do crazy stuff, why we had open-air church for a year, why we serve breakfast to the community and believe very much in talking to people when they come through the doors. It's because we want to be on mission. And that can be, listen, that can be that when you come to church on Sunday morning, what we're actually trying to get you to do is to go. Even if it means you take your plate of breakfast and you sit down across the table from a complete and total stranger. And you just talk to them and get to know them. And at some point you go. You get to share about what Jesus has done. You hear their story. You hear about their experiences. And then you share your experiences. This is training grounds for Southern California Christians. Does that make sense? This is like a boot camp. What happens is sometimes Christians come in and, and they go, oh, oh, I don't like this. I want my eggs and pancakes, but I want to go eat them by myself. And then I want to go in and hear a sermon and worship and go home. We're not that church. We're a church on mission. To reach the community. Because we've been told to go. That's the only reason why we're still here. Does that make sense? When I was a youth pastor, I would put my high school kids on an airplane. You know high school kids, right? They're, um, they're lazy, you know. I always tell high school kids that, you know, 20, 21 years old, your heart catches up to the rest of your body. Right? So if you're in high school and you sleep in and your parents get on you, there's actually a physiological reason for that. There's a reason you're yawning all the time and you're tired because your heart size hasn't grown up to your body size yet. Okay? So you tell, them, you tell mom and dad, right there you tell them, but physiological reason mom and dad's why I'm tired. But here's the deal. Um, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I tried to get my, my kids to read and to pray and to give and to do all the things that Christians, quote unquote, ought to do, Right? And so I'd always be hammering away. But the problem was, they were an audience, right? In here, the thing that kills me about sitting in rows is you're an audience, right? In the other place, you weren't an audience, right? That's why there's an important emphasis on breakfast. And by the way, I'm not preaching a sermon this morning. So you're like, this sermon sucks. That's cool. I'm giving you vision, okay? I don't really care how good a sermon is. I want you to get this this morning, okay? Here's the deal. 
I would take these kids and I would basically pop them on an airplane and, and they would go from being audience spectators to actually being participants. They would go from being spectator sport watchers to actually becoming athletes. They would get off the plane and I would watch these kids this transformation happened. We would just kind of like mama bird push him out of the nest and get him sharing their faith. I would watch 16-year-old girls leading whole families to Christ on a train in Europe somewhere. And the whole family weeping at the beauty of the gospel. And these kids weeping. And they became these little fireballs and these animals just going, oh my gosh, God can use me. And they came alive. Suddenly now, when they went from spectators to athletes, something in them came alive. They had never enjoyed their Christianity more. You see, bored Christians are miserable Christians. But Christians on mission, on adventure, are excited Christians. Have you ever shared your faith with somebody, and as you're doing it, you've never felt so alive in all your life? You come away just puzzed, supercharged. What's going on in you? It's that the Holy Spirit who's in you is going, ah, that's what I'm there for. You will receive power from on high. Guys, that was the Holy Spirit. Boom, that's what he's here for. He is there for supernatural stuff. You read the end of Mark. Mark links the Holy Spirit. He links the supernatural. He goes, you know what? You're going to need him. He's going to come into you, and as you're going out preaching the gospel, there's going to be these accompanying miracles and signs. That's why my theory is, and some of you have heard this, but I'm going to repeat it, because, guys, this is the passion. This is the vision. If you want to understand what makes me tick, it's this. I have an apostolic calling in ministry. That means that my whole ministry is not to go out and share the gospel. My whole ministry is to get you on mission. Because God did not call me to babysit Christians. He did not call me to make converts. That's nowhere in Matthew. Go out and make converts. He says, go out and make disciples. You know what it means to make disciples? It means to make people like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He was on mission, right? Jesus was the ultimate missionary. He came out on mission. His work on the cross for us, for our salvation, was finished. But his ministry and his intention for planet Earth was left unfinished. And guess who was caught holding the bag? Me and you. The disciples, the twelve. So we are called to be on mission. And God has not called me to make converts. There's too many converts running around Southern California this morning. Too many people that we packed into stadiums, that we got to walk down an aisle, and they went up front, and they said a prayer, and they turned around and touched their nose and touched their toes, and got a little booklet and a Bible and walked away and went, now what? And nobody told them. So that we have this weird little Bible belt filled with converts, but not disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples disciples. What is a disciple? Someone on mission with Jesus. That's a disciple. You see, Jesus, when he recruited 12 disciples, what did he do? Did he say, um, I want you to pray and read your Bible and give your money? What did he do? No, what did he say? He said, follow me. 
And what did he do? He took him on mission. So off they went with him on mission. And the whole time Jesus is training these guys, and we saw it in Mark, what's he trying to get them to do? Stand back. Watch. Watch what the master does now, everybody. Stand back. Stand back. Here we go. What do he do? No. He sends them out healing. He sends them out casting out demons. He says to them when the crowd's around, you give them something to eat. And they go, uh, Lord, we only have a little bit of bread. He's calling them into the ministry to do radical, crazy, supernatural things. Back in the 90s, I was a bookworm. I hung out in my office all the time. I read books. I was on staff in a mega church. I taught six Bible studies a week. My sending pastor, Bill Welsh, would come in and say, what are you doing today, Peyton? I'd say, nothing. Just reading. I could read back then a book a day. And we're not talking like, I'd be reading like Puritans and like heavy-duty systematic theology. I would read heavy-duty stuff. And I would just, like a monk, people would be like, do you live here? At the church? Because I get in there at 6 a.m. All I want to do is study. And then God made me go on mission to Marina High School. First day I got out of the car. I parked in the teacher's parking like a punk. Got out, walked inside. The dean that was there when I was there caught me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, leading a Bible study. Going to preach to kids. She said, no, you're not. Get back in your car and get out of here. So I got back in my car, drove around, parked again, went inside. She promised me if I ever see you here again, I will call the police. I know today we're glad that people like me don't turn up to campus, right? This is back in like the 80s. This is back in the days before you got to worry, you know. Kind of like today if you see a young dude on, just get out of here. But, But back then I went in, I preached the gospel. For the next year and a half, I walked on that campus every single week, preached the gospel, kids got saved. I never saw that dean again. The security guards knew me by name. I have no idea how. I walk right past them. They'd be like, hey, Peyton, how you doing? I put it down to, all right, Lord, because I remember going back that day and praying and saying, Lord, I don't want to go to jail. These kids need you more than anything. School weren't doing nothing for them. The reality is, that day started an adventure for me. And God eventually took me out on the streets. I would go to pubs and nightclubs. I share the gospel. This right here is a scar from a big rugby player putting me down. And I know it sounds horrible. You put me in the hospital, I had a little bit of brain damage afterwards. Maybe I still do. But I would, I would pass out. I would have these like weird little like you know paralysis fits afterwards for a few months. You know what? I loved it. Because it was the closest thing to the book of Acts I came to. And I wasn't wired like that. I was probably like a lot of you in here going, no, no, don't call me to do that. Don't make me actually like do stuff that's in the Bible. I don't want to do that. That's scary. Exactly. That's why Jesus is saying you need the Holy Spirit. You're going to need me because I'm going to throw you out of your depths. You are going to be a disciple. You are going to be someone who learns not to depend on yourself, not to live for yourself, that it ain't about you, and you're going to start learning to depend on God and go for God and minister for God. You're going to learn to be the body who takes the orders from the head, who spreads out as his hands and his feet. And does what he does. You see, the only thing that made the difference for me and for those high school kids was we put them on mission. 
Remember I told you I used to try to get them to read and pray and all that? Suddenly something lit in those kids and they transformed. As soon as they got on mission, they started reading. I come out, what do you do? I'm reading my Bible. You know, they'd want to pray all the time. Hey, Peyton, can you meet with me? We get back to America. Can we meet? Can we keep doing this? Can we do that? They want to keep doing stuff. They were transformed because they got a taste of going. They got a taste of mission. Southern California Christianity has become a very strange thing. Um, this culture, I don't know if you've realized it, the fish is the last one to notice the water, but it's in absolute opposition to everything that Jesus is talking about. Go. Have your eyes on me. Go out for them, God and others. And this culture is all like a vacuum into self, right? So that we make Christianity, when it's filled with converts, we make Christianity this thing that doesn't change us, doesn't transform us. The very word student is what disciple actually means. That I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm conforming to be like Jesus. Where it's not about me, it's about others. I've come not to be served, Jesus said, but to serve. I have come to seek and save the lost. And John makes the connection that anyone who would follow him must walk as he walked. Jesus said, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is a must. It's not an option as a Christian. It's not an option. If any man would follow me, he must. And I know this isn't popular. I know people don't want to preach like this today. Already today, I know some of you guys in here are going, hey, you know what? I don't like this. But let me ask you, do you like what Christianity is like for you now? Is it satisfying you? You see, we make it this weird thing, Christianity, where suddenly it's like, uh, it becomes all about me. The two biggest selling books over the last 10 years, up until maybe five years ago, let's take the 10 years before that, there's good news. 10 years before that, from roughly uh, 95 to 2005, two best selling books were Left Behind, which is about the rapture, and the prayer of Jabez, which is about saying a magic prayer that gives you bunches of stuff. All right? God bless me and don't let me see any trouble. What a weird interpretation of Christianity. So we pray things like this. God, bless my business and bless my job. And cool, you know, nice to be able to pay your bills. But basically, so we can go get our boob jobs and our, you know, eyelash extensions. And, you know, um, you know and then we complain about our bills because the bill at the spa is so high, you know. Just can't keep up. Southern California living, it's killing me. Meanwhile, we're in one of the most affluent societies that denies ourselves nothing. And we've somehow tied God into all this. Like as if it's normal. Self, self, self. And then we look around and Christianity doesn't work in Southern California. It just doesn't work. Over time, all that stuff that you live for stops satisfying you. You do more and more and more, and you're still not satisfied. You know why? Because there's only one thing that satisfies a Christian. Being on mission with Jesus. It's the only way you're going to feel alive. It's the only way that the Spirit within you is going to just energize you. Right? That's the only way. That you're going to start feeling like, I am doing what I was made for. I am. Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1, right? He creates Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, fill the earth and multiply. 
They were made in God's image. That means that the glory of God just shone out of them. All you had to do to glorify God was just have kids. Have more of yourselves. And so it was glorifying God by reproduction. That would be great, wouldn't it? Right? That was their mission. Just make more of yourselves because you're so awesome. That's, that was it before the fall. After the fall, it changed, didn't it? God says, you need to be transformed. As you're transformed by my grace and love and power, you will shine out my glory to the world. So it's not quite as easy as just, you know, our chromosomes doing the barn dance, right? It's a little bit more complex. But still, that glorifying God has to happen. We have to be fruitful and multiply. And we can only do that by going. Paul said, how are they going to hear unless someone goes to them? We have to go. See, all those things are dissatisfying. I've mentioned about the two books, right? So prayer Jabez, give me stuff. Left behind, take me out of here. So let me just summarize. Let me give a book report on the two books. And this is what we've made Christianity in America. Number one, get as much crap as you can. And number two, get the heck out of here as fast as you can. Now somehow I just don't hear Jesus saying that. I hear the disciples going, Lord, can we just go to heaven? No. There's work to do. There's a mission. Freely you've been given, now freely give. You see, we're so dissatisfied that when we come to church, because we're not on mission, we're so dissatisfied, we come to church and we're like, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs. Let me tell you what your need is. Your need is to be on mission. And as long as you come here, I'm going to keep telling you that. Yes, Charlie and I work hard to make sure you understand the grace of God. That God loves you. That he cares for you. He bled for you. He died for you. And nothing you do will earn his acceptance. Even going will not earn your acceptance before God. You are as equally as accepted by God today if you go or if you don't go. Isn't that nice? Because that's a good starting point. But you're not equally as satisfied. You will not be satisfied just sitting and not going. For me, I'm still in culture shock. I got back uh, a year, uh, no, two years ago, and I'm still in culture shock with, with Christianity here. So if some of that's coming off, just let it, uh, let it roll off. If you're like, dude, what are you talking about? I have no clue. This is great. I love Christianity. I love being here. I love it being all about me. I love what society's pushing on me. I think it's awesome. Give me more. If that's where you're at, then here's the deal. I want to say this to you. Disciples do one thing. They make disciples. A scary thought is, if I'm reproducing myself, is that what I want? Do I want to reproduce myself right now? You see, when you are following Jesus as a disciple, not a convert, but a disciple, and you're letting him transform you, and you're on mission with Jesus, that's something worth reproducing. Somewhere along the line, we have reproduced converts. We've filled our stadiums. We've made a bunch of people that come in for entertainment, but we've not made disciples. 
Disciples make disciples. In other words, when Jesus says, go out and make disciples, it means to reproduce yourself. So I want to ask you, how many disciples have you made? Have you made a disciple? Is there anyone today who's a Christian because you are in the world? That's important. And you say, well, wait a second. Leave it to the professionals. Jesus didn't give that option. He told those 11 men, go into all the world and make disciples, and then they died. Right? They did their best, and then they died. But you know what they did? They reproduced themselves. And those guys went on, and they reproduced themselves, and those guys went on, and here we are today. And the question is, are we reproducing ourselves, or are we leaving it to the professionals? Many Christians think that if you come to church, what you ought to do is leave it to the preacher to make converts. But what does it mean to make a disciple? To make a disciple, you have to get involved in the lives of other people. So to make a convert, all someone has to do is stand up here and listen. I preach a gospel, they get saved. But that's not what we're called to do. To make a disciple, that means that literally I sit down with them and I get involved in their life. And I see them transform. Now, Jesus, how he made disciples is he traveled with people for three years. Right? And he got involved with their lives. But the one thing we don't want in Southern California, because we're so busy, is to get more involved in anything. Right? Isn't that true? That's how we are. So our culture right away is at cross-purposes with what we're actually called to do. That's why we have COGS. Those of you that go to COGS, you know. You know that there's more transformation happening because you're in COGS than anywhere else because you're getting involved in someone's lives. The mask is coming down. You're not getting lost in a crowd. You're not just asking someone to entertain you. You're discovering your spiritual gifts. God is actually using you in the lives of other people and you are on mission. It may just be you're on mission to people in that room, but you're on mission. You're actually doing something. The Spirit of God is coursing through you. You're being used in the lives of others. And then... As that happens, you begin to multiply and to make copies of yourself. One of the things that um, we gave out to you not long ago was a book called Multiply by Francis Chan. How many of you guys took that book? Okay. That book is designed so that you can sit down with someone in your neighborhood or someone at work and you can take them through it. And they, it doesn't matter if they're a Christian or non-Christian. But it's you sitting down, multiplying yourself. You sit down and you go through it. And not multiplying yourself as yourself. You're looking to see the transformation power of Jesus and work at you, at work in someone else. It's a tool. It's kind of like training wheels to get you to start being a disciple. And how do you become a disciple? You start discipling other people. It's not rocket science. It's pretty simple, right? So go into all the world, make disciples, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And what else does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So making disciples is the priority. Baptism, which was how you showed that you were converted, that was kind of like a result. Right? So you could sit down with someone over coffee. It's really simple. 
and get involved with their lives. That's what it takes. There can be no discipleship apart from relationship. And so as we leave this morning, here's what I want you to just go away and ask the question, am I making disciples? Am I going? And is there room in my life to actually go on mission? Is there actually room in my life this morning to make disciples? Because guys, I'm convinced this is at the very fabric, the very center of what holds the church back. We don't want more of church. Not here. We don't want more of church. We want more discipleship. We don't care if that means you go out from here and you're sitting down with people and winning them to Christ outside these four walls. That's great. That's what we actually want you to do. I don't want anyone to be dependent on me to have disciples. I don't want you to bring them here and have me make disciples because it won't happen in this setting. It has to happen in a relational setting like when Jesus meets with those dudes. And all of you have the power and the ability and the Holy Spirit in you where you can do that. So the three questions. Am I going Am I making disciples? And is there time in my life to see this happen? And you know what will happen? What Jesus said in Mark chapter 16. To those who believe, and to those who are engaged on this mission, guess what will happen? The Holy Spirit will start turning up in ways that you've never seen before. If you're looking for fun, entertainment, whatever it is, but not adventure, you need to get out there. You need to start seeing the Lord move in power. And you know how he does it? You take your first step out there, he moves in power. Never forget my neighbor coming across the street and closing. He came across the street and he goes, I come bringing beer. And he brings these two beers across the street. So I went over, he was barbecuing some meat, and I went over there and we hung out and we talked for a while. And he was really arrogant, really cocky. And I thought, man, this is going to be my neighbor. He's kind of hard to talk to. And then as we kept talking, the Lord gave me a vision as I was talking to him. And I I said to Andrew, I had a vision when I was talking to my neighbor, um, that he was going to be broken and humble, and he was going to be following Jesus. And uh, guess what? Maybe four or five months ago, He came to my house. He was broken. He was humble. He wanted to give his life to the Lord. Exactly what I saw in my head was happening right in front of me. He got saved. We're going through multiply. I gave him the book. And he's begging me. Not a week goes by he doesn't say, Peyton, when are you going to plant a church up here? When are you going to plant a church up here? We need a church. He goes, all my friends, they need Jesus, they need this. They need the kind of church you're talking about. Man, they would go for it. Because you know what? Our church goes a little bit longer, doesn't it? It's because we got things we're trying to accomplish, right? Right? We're not just entertaining Christians. I found when I was on mission, non-Christians would be like, dude, we'll sit and talk for like two hours, man. Because I've, I've, had, I've had these questions for 10 years. I've been wondering about this for ages, man. It's only Christians that want an hour-long service. And I've got to be honest with you guys, that kind of stuff drives me nuts. Because there's people out there dying. There's people out there that need the Lord. There's people out there shooting up all the time. There's people out there that have no hope. And they need Christ. So if I'm a little bit on the soapbox today, hey, you know what? I apologize for that. But I'm going to come back and circle back and ask you that question. Same question today that we start off with. What are your marching orders? What are your marching orders?
Are you going? Are you winning disciples? Is there time in your life to do that? And number four, is the Holy Spirit turning up? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning, Lord, that you love us in spite of going or not going. We're not even talking about that, Lord. But we're talking this morning, Lord, about being satisfied. Lord, because we're on mission with you, you are a God who is eternally on mission. You will always be on mission. You will be on mission until the day that you return. Father, we want to be on mission with you. We want to go knowing as you said, and I will be with you. Lord, we know that in theory. But it's awesome when we see it in practice. When we actually see you turning up. And Lord, this morning, I have just felt like I am fighting against, Lord, the current. I can, I can just feel, Lord, that even the enemy, he does not want the sleeping giant awoken. He does not want your people, the church, the one hope that you gave to the world, to wake up and to fight for the souls of the lost outside these doors. He wants us to go back into our cocoon like the Matrix. He wants us to go back to sleep. He wants us to focus on self. He doesn't want us to hear what Rick Warren said in 2005 when he broke that cycle. When he started a book that said, it's not about you. Lord, speak that to us today. It's not about us. It's about you. And it's about them. And Lord, send us. Make us a missional people. Make us a missional church, a church on mission for Jesus, Lord. Not a church that comes like a consumer Christian who says, you know, I think I'll ride the teacups today. I like that church program. Or I go to that church because the speaker is so funny. Or I go to that church because I like what it gives to me. Lord, we pray this morning that we would be on mission. Lord, I pray that next week when we're here, that we come through that gateway seeing everybody with new eyes. I'm here for them because God is here for them. Lord, make us goers, even if it's walking across the room, even if it's getting out of our front door and talking over the backyard fence to a neighbor. We lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. dot